The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. What does God think? Well, we can actually answer that question very specifically. We know exactly what God thinks because it's in the Bible. So we are going to study his word together. For those of you who haven't been here, we are in the midst of a four-part series on what the Bible says about Israel. Today is the conclusion if you got a bulletin as you were coming in, there's a little outline on there if that helps you. Um, and today it's what the Bible says about Israel, part four, and it's the future. Now, while you're getting your stuff ready in your Bible, and we're going to look at several different scriptures together, just a few quick updates. We usually have children's church this time where we would dismiss our young ones to go. Uh, study the word together but we're going to keep our kids in here today usually we do that on communion or the lord's time when we have the lord's supper or communion so we're going to have communion together at the end of the sermon we'll do that together as a church family uh, also just wanted to ask if can you raise your hand if you were not here last week i have to raise my hand because i was not here last week. if you're not here in church last week and just put your hand up real quick i'm not going to make fun of you or anything or go ahead and put you just want to see how many we had here because just a couple updates from last week thank you to derek who preached for me on my behalf out of Hebrews. Uh, appreciate that. And I, I got word. I haven't listened to the sermon yet, but I will. Looking forward to that. But I did hear feedback from people, and they were sharing the content and how they were convicted and blessed. And uh, very, it's comforting to know it, when you're gone, you can be assured and confident that those behind preaching in my place are going to do a, a faithful job to Scripture and I knew that would be the case with Derek. So thank you for bringing the word, brother. Also, if you're not here last week, the few of you, we introduced uh, the new Big Truth Little Books. These little books that we're trying to make biblical truth accessible and practical for you. So it's out in the lobby of the book card. You can get it on Amazon for $4.99, about the cheapest books there are. Uh, and this new Big Truth Little Book is called Educating Your Child. So it's for parents with children. And if you're thinking through, what do I do with my kids? Do I do homeschool? Because all true spiritual Christians do homeschool. Uh, or do I do be a compromiser and go to public school? Or do I do Christian school? So you have to wrestle through that as parents. And so uh, we put a little booklet together that I trust is helpful for you. Some of you already got it and actually read it and gave me some feedback. So thank you for doing that. I was uh, excited about this one in particular as we had to go through that. We still are. What do we do with our children seeking God's wisdom and also a lot of other stuff going on even just in the world um, those we didn't talk about this but a couple months ago R.C. Sproul went to heaven R.C. Sproul raise your hand if you don't know who R.C. Sproul is see there's a couple of you R.C. Sproul if you don't know who R.C. Sproul was he was just a faithful man of God and a well-known evangelical uh, Bible teacher pastor had his, had an impact on many people's lives here so he went to be with Jesus uh, last month, and then this month, just recently, uh, Billy Graham went to be with the Lord. So he's in heaven. Billy Graham is in heaven with R.C. Sproul and all the saints who have gone before. Uh, and that happened just within the last week. 99 years old. Actually, I know one of my friends is actually on the board of the Samaritan's Purse Ministry, uh, Dr. Felix. And he, he called me about six months ago and said, yeah, Billy's 99 now, and he wants to make it to 100. And didn't quite make it. 99. So, um, But raise your hand if you have never heard a Billy Graham sermon, just out of curiosity. If you've never heard a Billy Graham sermon, okay, put your hands down. Um, so that some of you raised your hand. I teach a class at the Cornerstone Seminary. I teach several classes, but one of them that I teach is a, a preaching class. And one of the assignments I have in the class, and most of my students are usually pastors or they work at a church. And I always do a survey. Anybody here never heard a Billy Graham sermon or seen him preach? And every time there's always somebody who has never heard him preach or never seen him preach. I just, <laughs> to me, that's shocking. It's like, wow. So one of the homework assignments is we actually have to watch one of his sermons from 1955 in the class. Incredibly powerful. So I'd encourage you, if you haven't ever heard Billy Graham preach, go on YouTube, uh, watch one of his sermons. I had an interesting question from some folks this morning here at GBF asking me, uh, so what do you think of Billy Graham? Pastor Cliff, what do I think of him? Well, he's perfect right now because he's in heaven with Jesus. Uh, well, I mean, what did you think about him? Did he? Did you agree with everything he said? And I said, no, because I don't agree with everything I say. So, um, 
But to be specific, his preaching was phenomenal because he focused on one thing, the gospel. And so I've never heard a Billy Graham sermon that I didn't think was powerful because he always confined it to the gospel. Uh, But then he would do interviews at times, and that got him in trouble. And that's what they were talking about. So you have to be discerning, as he was on Larry King one time, not long ago, 10 years ago, and was asked about Mormonism, and he made the comment that Mormons are Christians, and that got him in trouble. But then Franklin Graham, his son, came along and cleared that up. He said, oh, my daddy's just getting old. (laughs) Don't listen to him. Anyway, so that happens. Well, with that, well, other stuff that's in the news is Israel. I told you four weeks, five weeks ago now, but it was in my first sermon I did on what the Bible says about Israel. During that first sermon, I said that Israel, because it is God's nation, God's people, God's wife. Wait, can I say that? Yeah, I'll say it. God's wife. Why do I say that? Well, because that's in the Bible. God, that's a quote from Scripture. God said he created Israel. He owns Israel. Israel belongs to me. Quote, God said, you became mine. End quote, Ezekiel 16.8. God's wife, Ezekiel 16.32. Israel. God's precious wife. God's precious bride. God, not God's perfect wife. God's sinful wife. God's compromising wife. God's adulterous Wife, nevertheless, God's wife, God's bride. That's clear from the Old Testament. Totally committed with an unfailing love and everlasting commitment and covenant that he made to his wife, the bride, Israel. The apple of his eye. And that's what we kicked off in our first sermon on this series about Israel. Trying to clarify, well, what does the Bible, does the Bible have anything to say about Israel? Because my point was or the statement that I made is that Israel is in the news every single day. And if you have been paying attention and reading the news, Israel was in the news every single day this week in the headlines for several different reasons. That has always been the case since I've been alive. That will always be the case till the end of the age. There's a reason for that. The main reason that Israel was in the news this week, I'll just, I'll just read this. Excerpt from World News. Reuters, that's a major news outlet. That's not obscure. Reuters, here's an article from Reuters. February 23rd, this is two days ago. Headline, U.S. ready to open Jerusalem embassy in May. Here's what it says. Washington, Reuters. The United States said on Friday... It will open its embassy to Israel in Jerusalem on May 11th. Wow, that's uh, just a couple months away. A move from Tel Aviv, where the embassy currently is, the United States, that reverses decades of U.S. policy and is bound to trouble U.S. allies who have already objected. U.S. President Donald Trump announced last December, we talked about this, the the United States, get this, that the United States recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Like, that's new news that people weren't aware of. Oh, by the way, the United States president declares that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. When actually 3,000 years ago, God Almighty declared that to be so. So it's in the Bible. That's why it is so important. That's why I chose this topic. What does the Bible say about Israel? Because it's so confusing and people are dialing, especially if you're watching the news. uh, Half the time people don't know what they're talking about. They're speaking in ignorance. They're confusing and convoluting the matter for people. They are not being helpful. And that's why we've got the treasure of God's word that clearly sorts out these issues. And it's a practical matter for so many different reasons. But it wasn't President Trump who declared Jerusalem Israel's capital, like this article says. God did, at least 3,000 years ago, even before that, actually. By doing so, the United States infuriated even Washington's Arab allies and dismaying Palestinians who want the eastern part of the city as their capital. 
Listen to this quote. No other country, no other country has recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Now that is fake news. I'll read it again. No other country has recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital. And just, sorry to be redundant. Well, God has. God did. It's not changing. And the president's decision has sown discord. Trump's decision has sown discord by doing so. And he's sown discord between the United States and the European Union over Middle East peace efforts. Peace efforts. Then it goes on. A May opening, May 11th opening, is earlier than expected. The U.S. Vice President Mike Pence told the Israeli parliament last month that the move would take place at least by the end of 2019. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu hailed Friday's U.S. announcement as, quote, a great day for the people of Israel, end quote. Palestinians reacted to the news with it. Who are the Palestinians? We also talked about that in our last sermon. Who are the Palestinians? Palestine, that, that term is historical revisionism. It is confusing. It, it doesn't correspond to reality or history. There are no people living today that are ethnically Palestinian. We talked about that. The Palestinian, Palestine comes from the word Philistine. The Philistines died out 300 B.C. There are no Philistines today or true Palestinian people. When they say Palestinians, what that means actually is that is it's referring to Arabs or Persians who mostly are Muslim. That's what they should say. So by saying Palestinian, they're confusing things. Palestinian or Palestine refers primarily to the land there historically. So Palestinians reacted to the news with anger. This is, quote, this is an unacceptable step. Any unilateral move will not give legitimacy to anyone. So it's not legitimate, they say, for Israel to be in the land of Israel, even though God said that land is theirs. God gave it to them. We made that clear from Scripture. So this undermines legitimacy for anyone and will be an obstacle to any effort to create peace. So that when we keep, and I address this as well, anytime you hear on the news a president, I don't care who it is, a world leader, someone talking about we're trying to be a catalyst for peace between Israel and the Palestinians or Israel and the Arabs who live there. That is not going to happen. Scripture is clear about that. How do we know that? Because we'll see some of these passages in the Bible. We'll even read from some of these. Zechariah uh, 12 is one very specific one. Ezekiel 16 is another very specific one. There is not going to be peace in the Middle East. Revelation, the whole book of Revelation. There isn't going to be peace in the Middle East. Until the end. So that is not ambiguous in Scripture. So that was this week's news. And a lot of people are getting riled up for the wrong reasons. So let's go ahead and look at today's outline. I've got ten points there. And let's see if we can march through it. I made summary truths, and then I'll just give you maybe a Scripture or two with each one. That way, if you want to do further study, there is so much information. If you want to study what the Bible has to say about Israel, you have to basically study the whole Bible. That's why this, this kind of sermon is very difficult. It was very frustrating. It's like, boy, can I read and study the entire Bible by Sunday? I don't think so. So this is just representative of all that God has to say on these issues. These are summary truths, really. But we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about Israel. Part four, this is the future. Those of you who haven't been with us are just by way of reminder, because it's been a while. Let me just summarize what we covered in the first three weeks with three questions. Week one, we answered the question, where did Israel come from? And we determined from Scripture, Israel came from God, from the loins of Abraham in 2100 B.C. So God created Israel as a special nation over 4,000 years ago. Wow. No other nation on planet Earth can say that. They've been around that long and specifically chosen by God. Week number two, we answered the question, who owns the land? Who owns the promised land? Who owns that big, beautiful, prized lot of land over there in the Middle East? Who owns the promised land? The answer from Scripture was God owns it. God created it. He owns it. Leviticus 25, verse 1. The land is mine. (laughs) <laughs> That's verse uh, 1 and verse 23 of Leviticus 25. The Lord spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai as they're about to enter in the promised land. And God said, Yahweh said, the Lord said, the land is 
mine who owns the promised land, God. Then he goes on to say in verse 20, or uh, chapter 25, verse 2 of Leviticus, God said to Moses, the land is mine. And then he said, the land which I shall give to you. The land which I shall give to you forever. Who owns the land? God. He gave it to Israel. They own the land. And then question number three, week three. Why does the world hate Israel? Why does the world hate Israel? Well, they do. The world hates Israel. We saw that with all the countries that are in the United Nations. The supermajority of them absolutely hate Israel. They hate the Jews. They're anti-Semitic. And their goal is to see Israel and the Jews and the Hebrews and the Israelites get pushed into the Mediterranean Sea. And the Jews have been a hated people virtually since they came into existence. We saw the answer in Scripture. Why does the world hate Israel? Well, the answer is because God loves Israel. There's your simple answer. The world hates Israel because God loves Israel. The world hates what God loves. The Father loves Jesus, and Jesus said in John 7, the world hates me. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus went on to say to his disciples, I love you, the Father loves you, and the world hates you. It's axiomatic in Scripture. Whatever God loves, the world hates. God created Israel, raised Israel, betrothed Israel, made an eternal covenant of marriage to Israel, And that's why the world hates Israel. And then today we answer this question. What is the future of Israel? Is there a future of Israel? So let's go ahead and look at the answer. Is there a future of Israel? And if it is, if there is a future for Israel, what does it hold? And in partially in answering the question, what does the future of Israel look like? We have to talk a little bit about the present state of Israel. What is the existence of Israel right now? From God's point of view, does the scripture even address it? So that's why we have some of these preliminary points. Let's go ahead and look at those. Uh, Some of these are review, but let's look at point number one in answering the question. What does the Bible say about Israel's future? Number one, God made an unconditional promise to Israel. This is a reminder, Genesis 12. uh, We read this. I'll just read it again because it's foundational to everything. So God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeas over there by the Tigris-Euphrates River when Abraham was 75 years old. He grew up as a pagan, as an idol worshiper. Then he came to know the true God, and God elected him, selected him, chose him, set his love and grace upon him to do a great thing, to create this blessed nation that would become Israel by which the Messiah would come as the Savior of the world. And here's what God said to Abraham when God called him. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. That's the promised land. That's Israel. That's Canaan. That's Palestine. Uh, Go to that land because I'm going to give that land to you. Go to the land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation. Abraham, that great nation is the nation of Israel. They are so great. They've been around for 4,100 years in continuity. The continuity has never been broken because they are God's perpetual people. Not only that, will I make you a great nation, I will also bless you. And Israel has been blessed in many ways by God. And I also make your name great, your reputation, Abraham. You're the father of the Jews. And because you're a man of faith, you also become a father of all who believe in the true God through the gospel. And so you shall be a blessing, not just physically, but primarily. He'll be the greatest blessing spiritually through the loins of Abraham would come Jesus, the Savior of the world. You will be a blessing, Abraham, verse 3. And I will bless Those who bless you, Abraham, I will bless those who bless the Jews. I will bless those who bless the Hebrews. I will bless those who bless the Israelites. I will bless those who bless your offspring, ethnically, literally speaking, uh, present tense. I will continue to bless you. This, I said this blessing has never been revoked by God in Scripture. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And I'd say this promise is still intact today and has been ever since this was given 4,000 years ago. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And Paul tells us in Galatians 3.8, the fulfillment of that promise is the coming of the Messiah. Savior of the world. So that promise, Genesis 12, is foundational to everything. And then he reiterates that promise in Genesis 15 and many other places. And I put there, God made an unconditional promise. He didn't just make, some people would argue, even Christians or covenant theologians, sometimes they're called, 
non-dispensationalist, would say, well, yeah, God did make a special promise to Abraham, but it was conditional, and Israel blew it. They disobeyed, they turned their back on God, and therefore uh, the covenant has been broken and violated, and so God is not obligated to fulfill that anymore. That is not true at all. God made an unconditional commitment and vow and covenant to Israel. It cannot be broken because the vow was made on God himself. He vowed with himself. And that's why in Romans eleven twenty nine, Paul clearly says that God's promises cannot be revoked. They're irrevocable. So God's promise that he made to Israel still stands and will be fulfilled in the future. So God made an unconditional, really an eternal promise to the nation of Israel. Number two, we need to understand when we're talking about the, what is the future of Israel, we've got to ask, well, what is the state of Israel right now, the Jews, and also all 2,000 years of church history, and with the coming of the church, did things change? Did, did the church supplant Israel? Because in the Old Testament, God was dealing primarily with Israel as his people, the community of believers, and then we transition into the New Testament. Now God is dealing with the church, which is a different entity than Israel, and many would say, or some would say, that, well, what happened was the church supplanted Israel, and so God isn't dealing with Israel anymore. He's only dealing with the church. And others would say, these are Christians, would say that the church actually, he didn't necessarily supplant Israel, but Israel has been subsumed by the church. In other words, uh, the church is the new spiritual Israel. Or today, the church is the new, the new Israel, the new spiritual Israel, or you could say the church is Israel. And so every time you read something about Israel and promises made to Israel in the Old Testament, you can apply that to you, to the church and yourself. And so the church is Israel. So, so the, the, the argument goes, but, and that's very confusing. That's just not true. So that's why I put point number two there. Very important. Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, at age 40, he got saved. He became a believer. And then God changed his name to Israel. Jacob, Israel, Hebrew or Hebrews, Jew. Those words, they are always literal in the Bible. Because some Christians would try to argue and say, well, sometimes those words are figurative. When Actually, when you see the word Israel, it's actually figurative and it represents the church, not ethnic Israel. And so, for example, Galatians 6.16, the Israel of God. Paul's writing to the Galatians, and he makes reference to the Israel of God. And some covenant theologians say, well, the word Israel there doesn't refer to Israel. It doesn't refer to Jews. It doesn't refer to ethnic Hebrews. Actually, what that refers to is anybody that loves God and believes in Jesus. So it's a spiritual reference to the church. So Israel is the church. That is not true. Anytime you see the word Israel in the Bible, it means Israel. Ethnic Jews, without exception. As a matter of fact, uh, the word Israel is used 2,500 plus times in the Old Testament. 2,500 times. We have a lot of data to draw from to come to a conclusion about what does the word Israel mean? 2,500 times in the Old Testament, 68 times in the New Testament, the word Israel is used. In the Old Testament, 100% of the time, the word Israel either refers to one of three things. The, person, the man Jacob, because that was his name, literally. Number two, Israel referred to the land of Israel. Or number three, the word Israel could refer to the people of Israel, the Jews. Never in the Old Testament does the word Israel refer to some myth, uh, metaphorical use other than its literal usage. So Israel means Israel. That's my only point. Jew means Jew, Hebrew means Hebrew. And that's consistent all throughout the Bible, even in the New Testament. So when you read Galatians 6.16 and you read the word Israel of God, just think, Ethnic Jews, these are real Jews, but these are Jews who actually believed in the gospel. They got saved, as opposed to Jews who rejected Christ. So Paul does make a distinction between believing Jews and unbelieving Jews. The real Jews and not the real Jews. The real chosen one, uh, Israelites, and the not chosen Israelites. And the not chosen Israelites are the ones who rejected Christ when they heard the gospel. So the Israel of God is believing Jews in the Christian community. Very clear. Same thing in Romans 2, same thing in Romans 9. Paul never convolutes the meanings. Uh, so you can study that on your own more if you'd like to. Then point leads us to point number three. Israel began with Abraham. What, so I have friends who are, they'd be called covenant theologians, covenant believing Christians. 
as opposed to dispensational. I know those are long, multi-syllable, confusing terms. But your covenant Christians, your covenant theologians, your non-dispensational Christians typically would say on this issue, I like to ask them, when they say that, well, the church is the new Israel and God isn't dealing with Israel today and there is no future for Israel. And when you see the word Israel in the New Testament, it's spiritual and it's not literal. And the the promises in the Old Testament aren't literally going to be fulfilled. Then I always just ask them, so the church is Israel? Then I like to ask, when did the church begin? And if you're a covenant theologian, you have to say the church began in the Old Testament. And they do. And there are some wonderful theologians uh, that we can... R.C. Sproul, I mentioned him earlier. He would be someone, J.I. Packer, all these amazing men of God, um, and many more. They would say that the church, Wayne Groom is another one, that the church exists in the Old Testament. The church was created in the Old Testament. The church has been around since uh, almost the creation of man. So that's what I typically like to ask my covenant friends, is when did the church begin? They'll say in the Old Testament. Then I will ask them, well, when did it begin? And here's the answer that you will get. Well, it began with uh, Moses and the giving of the law. Or they might say, actually, it began in Genesis 12 when God called Abraham. Or they might say, well, it actually began in Genesis 2 with the covenant of works when God called Adam. Or they might say, well, it actually began with uh, Solomon and David in the beginning, formerly the temple and the nation. Oh, okay. Well, which one is it? Well, it's actually all of them. Oh, okay. So the true, huh, what? Anyway. So usually the authoritative answer is that the church has always been around and it actually was created by God in the Garden of Eden in Acts chapter 2. That's when the church began. Even though when you read Genesis chapter 2, you don't see the word church. By the way, the word church doesn't exist in the Old Testament at all. So maybe if you're scratching your head, wait a minute, I didn't know the church existed in the Old Testament because I don't remember reading about it. Well, you didn't because it's not there. So you are very observant. And it's not in Genesis 2. So the church is not in the Old Testament. Clearly, you have to foist that, force it into the Bible if you're going to believe that. So that's the first thing I have them tell me. So when did the church begin? Oh, okay. So the church is Israel. But wait, when did Israel begin? Well, with Abraham. Anyway, it gets very confusing. Uh, and then the second question I'll ask him, let's go to Matthew 16, 18 in the New Testament. And in, in the Gospels, Jesus never talks about the church other than he makes three references. There are actually two specific references, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. So the entire ministry of Jesus, he's not talking about the church. He's talking to Israel and the Jews and the kingdom of God. Then towards the end of his ministry, he's about to die. He's going to the cross and a transition is going to be made. He's fully trained his 12 apostles who are all Jewish and a part of the nation of Israel and they will be the foundation of the church. So a change is uh, happening. And so to prepare for that, Jesus finally mentions the word church after three plus years of ministry, Matthew 16, Matthew 18. And in Matthew 16, Jesus mentions the church for the first time in his ministry in a formal and technical way. And he tells his disciples, I will build my church. I am going to, that's future tense, that's what it means. It's in Greek, it's future. And in Greek, that means it is future. It means it's future. It hasn't happened yet. I am going to build my church. Jesus made the promise in Matthew 16, 18. And it means clearly that the church didn't exist yet. He didn't say, I'm going to continue building my church. He didn't say that. I am going to build my church. I am going to build my church, my church, the church of Jesus, built on the gospel, built on my death, my life, my death, and my resurrection, which is about to happen after I die and rise again from the dead and ascend into heaven. Then the church will begin because it's my church. Jesus said, my church, the church of Jesus. I will build my church. I'm going to build my church. And he's telling his apostles that. And Ephesians tells us that Christ or God built the church on the foundation of his apostles. So the apostles were the foundation of the church. The church did not exist in the Old Testament. This is very, very clear. And so when I asked my covenant brothers this question, so when did the church begin? Oh, yeah, it began, it's always been around in Genesis 2. Oh, okay, then what, let's go Matthew 16, 18. What did Jesus mean when he said, I will build my church? And it's hilarious to just sit there and listen to him try to explain that. Or usually what they do is change the subject. Oh, did you you see the the Giants play? The 49ers, they were terrible this year. Wait, let's get back to Matthew 16, 18. Can you explain to me what this means? Anyway, because it is very simple. Face value, just take it at face value. So church didn't exist in the Old Testament. And Jesus made this promise that he would build his church on himself, his death, his resurrection, ascension. And he did that very thing. The church began on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And according to Ephesians... 
the foundation was the apostles. That's when the church began. If that did not eliminate Israel, that did not subsume Israel, that did not usurp the promises of Israel, that did not uh, displace Israel, that did not supplant Israel, that didn't morph into a spiritual uh, metaphorical Israel. No, the church is a totally distinct entity from Israel and they exist and they coexist side by side even today and they will coexist into the future and eternity and even during the tribulation and the millennium. So the church is different than Israel. So the church is God's people. And Israel, those who believe in the Old Testament are God's people. And the saints who were believers before Abraham. Did you know there were many people who got saved before Abraham was ever along? Before the nation of Israel existed, there were all kinds of godly people who lived before the church existed and before Israel existed, and God was still saving people, people like maybe Adam is in heaven and his son Abel and Seth, and Noah was not a Jew. Noah was not a member of the church, but Noah was a man of righteousness and of faith. He was a believer. So God has all kinds of different children. They're not all the same. Melchizedek. Genesis 14 was a believer and knew the true God. He was not a Jew. He was not part of the church. Job was not a Jew. As far as we could tell, Job was not a part of the church. Job loved God. Job is in heaven. So let's go on to number four. Well, what's going on with Israel? I mean, they're, they did. It is true. They rejected their Messiah collectively as a nation for the most part, the supermajority of the people that existed at the time of Christ. Jesus preached for three and a half years to the Jews. And according to John chapter 1, they did not receive him. His own people did not receive him. It was a remnant who believed. So the nation rejected Christ and only a remnant believed. And God judged them as a result. So that's why I put Israel is temporarily, temporarily hardened today. It's temporarily is key. So Israel as a nation is hardened by God. They became hardened because of their own sin and rebellion. That is clear in Scripture. God, God said that. You've got to read, uh, Deuter- start by reading Leviticus 26, the whole chapter. And God's talking to Moses, and he says, you're about to enter the promised land. It's going to be glorious. Man, that, that land is beautiful. It is flowing with milk and honey, and you've got it all the way from Dan down to Beersheba and down to the, the, the river of Egypt. It's all yours, oh, except uh, you've got some enemies you've got to displace before you get it. But anyway, and here's all the wonderful blessings that will come with it. If you're obedient, I will send rain from the sky and your plants will flourish. If you're obedient. Now, there were conditions in the unconditional promise. The conditions were obedience and blessing in the land was based on obedience. So there was something conditional about it, and that was blessing in the land. Ownership of the land was not conditional. It was not conditioned on obedience. It was going to be Israel's whether they obeyed or not. It was going to be Israel's whether they stayed there or not because God gave it to them. So Leviticus 26, God's telling Moses, okay, you got to tell the people uh, to go inherit the land. They need to obey. If they do, they will be blessed in the land. And then he gave them a warning. If you disobey in the land, you turn your back on me, you cheat, you get into idolatry and immorality, then I will punish you. I will chasten you. I'm going to do all these things. And the culmination of my chastening on you, Israel, my wife, my beloved, my eternal one, is I'm going to displace you from the land. I will remove you from the land. I will scatter you to the four corners of the earth. If you disobey. And then he goes on at the end of chapter 26. Or, yeah, and he says, but it won't be forever. It will be temporary. At the end of the age, when you repent, when you soften, when you turn to me, then I will bring you back into the land. I will gather you from the four corners of the earth and I will bring you back into the land to receive the fulfillment of all these promises. That's Leviticus 26, and you've got to read the whole chapter of Deuteronomy 30, same thing. It is absolutely amazing. And probably the most important chapter of all, if you can read it this week, would be Ezekiel 16. That is just a monumental, amazing chapter. It is the history of Israel in detail from their origin when God gave them birth and their growth and maturity, all their blessings, then their rebellion, they reached a, a climax, then God came down in his wrath, and he said he will scatter them 
to the ends of the earth, but in the last days I will gather you back to the land. So uh, Ezekiel 16, one of the greatest chapters in the Bible on this issue. So Israel is only temporarily hardened. This is what Paul says. So in Romans 9 through 11, 9, 10, Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11. Imagine chapter 9 is not there. When Paul wrote it with his, uh, or his secretary wrote it down on a scroll, he didn't have number breaks. He didn't have chapter 9, chapter 10. Chapter, it's just one continuous probably sentence and paragraphs. So it's a unit, it's a theme, it goes together, it's all about election. He was just talking about how God elects people, those who he will save in chapter 8. God elects people, he secures them for eternal salvation. It is his sovereign choice, he is the one that does it. And if you are elect by God, then you will never be abandoned by God. You will never be lost by God, you'll never be forsaken by God if you are elect. And then this fictitious protester in the book of Romans calls Paul on the carpet and says, well, wait a minute. If election is true, then why did God abandon Israel in the Old Testament? Because they were his beloved elect. Great question. And Paul says, oh, contraire. You do not know what you are talking about. On the surface, it looks like that Israel, the beloved elect of God, has been abandoned because of their disobedience, but they haven't. And then for 9, 10, and 11, he explains the plan of Israel, how they are still the elect of God, but temporarily they are under the chastening hand of God, except for a remnant. Jews can still hear the gospel and be saved today, but there will be few in compared to all of the Jews. And they are hardened. They are hardened from sin. They are hardened from unbelief. But that hardening by God, that's his wrath. That is his chastening. That is his judgment on them. Because of their disobedience. And he's doing that for several reasons. One of the reasons is he wants to woo them back to repentance. He's pushing his heavy hand down upon his precious people, his precious wife, that she might relent and repent someday. And she will. Another reason God is chastening Israel and has hardened them was out of a gracious love for Gentiles. That we might hear the gospel and be saved. And so we have been grafted in to this olive branch called Israel. And we are called wild branches. We're wild olive branches. We're not natural. We don't belong to the... If you're a Christian and you're a Gentile, you're a wild olive branch. You're wild. And so you got to read 9 through 11. And in there, Paul makes the argument, yeah, Israel, yeah, they're pretty bad. Looks on the surface. Yeah, they did reject Christ wholesale. And yeah, God's not dealing with them the same way he did in the Old Testament. But he will in the future. And this hardening of Israel, it's only temporary. It's temporary and also it's only partial. Romans 11.25, a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Well, when is that fullness of the Gentiles going to come in? At the end of the age, at the time of the tribulation, in the midst of the tribulation, at the end of the tribulation. That's when the fullness of the Gentiles, all the Gentiles that God once saved will be saved. And then God will resume his plan with the nation of Israel. So Israel is temporarily hardened. Number five, God is chastening Israel in the meantime as a nation. Does God still love Israel? Absolutely. Does God have a plan for Israel? Absolutely. Is Israel still Israel? Absolutely. Are the promises in the Old Testament still given to Israel? Will they be fulfilled? Absolutely. Does God care about Israel today? Absolutely. Does he still love Israel? Is it still his wife? Absolutely. Well, it doesn't look like it. Well, that's number five. God is chastening Israel. Just mention that. This is a loving chastening. Leviticus 26, 33 says, God said, you, Israel, I will scatter among the nations. Paul says in Romans eleven twenty that the Jews, the Israelites, they, quote, they were broken off because of their unbelief, end quote. Broken off. It's temporary. But God is chastening them. By the way, the ultimate chastening to soften Israel as a nation, to woo them to national repentance, is the time of the tribulation. That is clear from the Old Testament and the book of Revelation. What is the purpose of the tribulation? That seven years. One of the main purposes is to soften and to woo Israel. And it, God will be successful. And at the end of the tribulation, all Israel will be saved. The whole nation. A national repentance. It's going to be amazing. Number six, Israel will be gathered back to the promised land. After God's chastening hand has been effective and efficacious, Leviticus 26, 42, God said, then I will remember after I scatter you and chasten you, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, that's Israel, and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac, who was, and, and my covenant with Abraham, 
Genesis 12. And I will get this. I will remember the land. I will bring you back to the land. The land is still yours. That will happen at the end of the age. Israel will be gathered back to the promised land. By the way, part of this chastening that God was doing, listen to the terminology God gives to Moses when he describes the nature of God's chastening to Israel. God is a God of love, right? God, love, love, love. I heard a sermon this week on the radio and the pastor was saying, God is love, 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 just love, love. And I was just like, okay, well, yeah, true, but man, give me some holiness there somewhere. Give me, uh, give me, uh, an attribute of his, uh, his judgment. And I never got one. Listen to this. Deuteronomy 29, 28. Here's what God told Moses. If you obey me, I will bless you. You are mine. The land is mine. I'm giving it to you. You are my wife. I love you. I'm committed to you. It's an eternal covenant. It's an everlasting covenant. If you obey me, I will bless. If you disobey, there will be consequences. The ultimate consequence is scattering throughout the earth. Quote, Yahweh uprooted them from their land in anger and in fury and in great wrath and cast them into another land. End quote. That's speaking of God and his attitude and his actions towards the one whom he loved. He is a holy God. But they will be back, brought back to the promised land. His chastening will be effective. Verse 7, whom the Lord loves, he chastens as a son. Right? Number 7, Israel will repent. When? During the tribulation. When's the tribulation? Read the book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 18. That's the tribulation. It's future. We know it's future. How do we know it's future? Matthew 24, Jesus said the great tribulation is coming. It's an unprecedented, unprecedented time. There has never been a time like it. There never will be a time like it. Revelation 3.10 says the same thing. A time of chastening upon the earth that has been unknown throughout all of human history. It is yet future. It is literal. And it's during that time that God will regather his people in the land of Israel. By the way, in the early 1900s, you know, there, there were just very few Jews in the land of Israel. Very few. As a matter of fact, all throughout history... Starting in 722 when the Samaritans came in, they wiped out uh, most of Israel and took them out of the land and scattered them all over the earth. And then in 586, uh, Nebuchadnezzar finished them off and removed almost all the Jews out of the land of Israel. And there was a remnant. There were only a few. And then the Romans came in, 70 AD, and then they did the same thing. By 130 AD, there was hardly a Jew in existence in the land of promise. Amazing. By 130 AD. There are almost no Jews there. And then little by little, God keeps bringing them back. There were so few that even at the beginning of the 1900s, it was, I think, in the thousands of actual Jews in the land of Israel. Then in the 1940s, they started to flood in. Uh, by the 1970s, there were 6 million Jews. Today, there's at least 6.5 million Jews in the land of Israel. 6.5, that's amazing. They're not all there yet because there's almost 16 million Jews in the world. So not even half the Jews are in Israel. But that's where they're going. This is where this is heading. I will gather you from around the world and put you back in the... I will remember the land, we saw God said. This is all going to culminate in the tribulation. Uh, People get confused about the tribulation but because there's so much information in the Bible on the tribulation. It's hard to sort out, but Revelation is about the tribulation. Israel will repent during the tribulation. Jeremiah thirty-three sixteen, Romans eleven twenty-six. All Israel will be saved, uh, just as Scripture says in the Old Testament. So that's when it's going to happen. Number eight, all of Israel's promises will be realized in the millennium. Oh, by the way, Zechariah twelve ten. Zechariah twelve ten. Zechariah 12 is an amazing chapter. It's about the future. It's about the end of the age. It's about during the tribulation. And it's about God gathering the Jews back in the land of Israel. And he also says that he's going to bring the nations of the world up against, get this, Jerusalem. He mentions Jerusalem 10 times in Zechariah chapter 12. Jerusalem is where world history culminates. Jerusalem is where World War V happens. That's why it's so important. And God says, 
The Jews will be there. He'll gather them back there in Jerusalem. That's headquarters. That's where this will all come to a head. Not only will he bring all the Jews back to Israel and Jerusalem in particular, he's going to bring the nations of the world to Israel against the Jews. And he will punish the enemies of Israel, he says, but he will say this. Here's a quote from Zechariah 12.10. I will punish your enemies, but, quote, I will pour out on the house of David, that's the Jews, the Israelites, the spirit of grace in that day. And the Jews, the nation of Israel, will look upon their Messiah, the one whom they have crucified, the one whom they have pierced, and they will mourn over him as an only son, and they will worship him. Man, what a blessed day. That's yet to come, and that is literally going to happen. And that's why Paul can say with confidence in Revelation or Romans eleven twenty six, all Israel will be saved. And that leads us to number eight. All of Israel's promises will be realized in the millennium. Revelation 20 just says six times a millennium is coming. It's a thousand years where Jesus Christ reigns on the earth. Not reigning in the sky, not reigning in the fourth dimension and we can't see him. He's literally reigning on earth in fulfillment of countless Old Testament prophecies. How do you know that Jesus is going to reign on the earth? Because it says that in the Old Testament. He will reign as king on the earth. Zechariah 14, his feet will land on the Mount of Olives and he will reign as king. Well, how about Revelation 5.10? He will reign on the earth. Well, how long will that be? Well, Revelation 20 says it'll be a thousand years. He will reign for a thousand years, literally on the earth. Headquarters from Jerusalem. If you're a Christian, you'll be reigning in glory in a resurrected body with a rod of iron in perfection with the Lord Jesus Christ on the earth for a thousand years in glory on his behalf as vice regents of the blessed Christ ruling over the angels, ruling over the nations. That's your future. Man, it is exciting to be a Christian, isn't it? I can't go into all the details of all the millennium stuff. It's just, uh, just read, just read the longest five prophetic books in the Old Testament, which will take you about five months and you'll see it all there. The millennium on earth. Amazing. And then number 10, not only will be Israel will be revived and recognized during the seven year tribulation and then glorified and esteemed during the time of the millennium but will also be recognized in glory for all eternity. Does Israel have a future with God? Oh, absolutely. An eternal future with God. Revelation 21, 10 and 12. Here's John describing future eternal heaven, the celestial city. What it will look like? This is yet future. And one of the things, he's describing the holy city, Jerusalem, prepared and come down from God, from heaven, the new heavens, the new earth, and all of its glory in the streets of gold. And the holy city, it had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and names were written on the gates. What are the names? Which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. That is eternal recognition for all people, for all time, in heaven, of the glory of Israel. And that they are the perpetual wife of God Almighty. It's amazing. And then here's what Jesus said about the future of Israel. Let's go to Luke 22. And now we can, this verse is going to help us prepare for communion. Let's look at it. Luke 22. Uh, the last days of Jesus' ministry before he went to the cross. And he, he had a last supper with his beloved apostles. So we'll close with this. And right now our ushers can go ahead and get the elements ready for communion as we have the opportunity to prepare our hearts for communion. And actually, this goes on with point number 10. Israel will be recognized in all of eternity, including the millennium. And we're about to partake of communion. And, and if you're a Christian, you are invited today to partake in communion. So when that little cup comes around, you grab that. It's got the bread inside of it. It's got the drink. And just hold on to it and pray in your own heart quietly when we have our prayer time. We'll give you about a minute and... Richard will come up in just a minute uh, and, and just play for, as we can meditate in your own heart, worshiping your Lord, thanking him for forgiveness of sin and all the wonderful blessings that come with that. But just to prepare for that, here's Jesus at the Last Supper, verse 14 of Luke 22. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles were with him, the 11 apostles after G Judas left. 
And Jesus said to his apostles, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This is the last meal we're going to have together, brothers. This is it. Sweet time of fellowship, but also it was symbolic. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. There it is. I'm going to eat with you again someday in the future, but I won't eat with you until the kingdom of God in the future. Well, when is that day? Well, it's coming. Verse 17, and when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he said, take this cup and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And verse 20, and in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you, and it is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then look at verse 28. Uh, You are are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Wow, when is that going to happen? That's in the future kingdom, probably during the millennium. Glorified church, glorified saints will be with Christ, supping with him, fellowshipping with him, rejoicing in him as the blessed Savior, and we will have rights and great privileges. And part of those privileges will be we will be sitting on thrones of judgment and authority, and part of our duties will be judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Just I wanted to highlight there once again that Israel is being recognized by God in the millennium and eternity future because he made an eternal covenant of promise to the people of Israel. And we get to share in that blessed glory as glorified saints in the church. Right now, let's just take a moment as Richard plays and in your own heart. Just thank the Lord Jesus for his death, resurrection, and ongoing intercession on your behalf. Let me go ahead and pray for us before our last song together. And just a reminder that if you're a member of Grace Bible Fellowship, we'll have a brief announcement or meeting right after. So if you're not a member of GBF, we just ask if you could step out uh, outside the lobby as quick as you can. And then the members, you can come forward and we'll have our brief announcement. Let's go to the Father in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day and thank you for allowing us to learn from your living word. Thank you for your promise to feed our soul with the milk and the meat of, of the word. Thank you for our Holy Spirit who is our, our teacher and helps us apply truth and also continues to help us with sanctification, which we desperately need. So we thank you for your ongoing grace and the reminder from communion the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that even makes that possible on our behalf. We just count it a great privilege to be blessed children of God by the gospel of Christ. We thank you. We give you all the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.